Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today our guest is Congressman Ro Khanna, the congressman from Silicon Valley. More than that, Khanna has emerged as a leading progressive voice in this country over the last couple of years. Remember, he was the co-chair of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. He's also a member of the House Armed Services Committee. We ask him what he thinks of Joe Biden's picks for his cabinet so far, in particular, retired General Lloyd Austin to be Secretary of Defense. Austin has spent time on the board of directors for a defense contractor that supplied weapons to the Saudis for their war against Yemen. And remember, Khanna led the fight in Congress for the U.S. to pull its support for the Saudi Arabia in that war. We'll see what Khanna says about that. We'll also ask about what he thinks progressives should prioritize in a Biden administration and what he thinks House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will do after her current term as Speaker ends. And now, here's my conversation with Ro Khanna. Uh, Congressman Ro Khanna, from your office in Washington, D.C., to my home in Oakland, welcome back to It's All Political. It, it's been too long. I always enjoy doing it, so I appreciate your having me back. Excellent. Thank you. So, well, first of all, I, I feel like uh, I'm running the California political job bank uh, these days. So there's so much, uh, <laughs> so much uh, just, uh, moving around and movement. Uh, I have to ask you, uh, your name is your name's attached to a couple of the big jobs here, and I want to see about your interest. First of all, are you uh, interested in being California's attorney general? Now that Javier Becerra is going on to work in the Biden administration, you're, you're a Yale, uh, Yale Law School guy. Uh, why not put that to degree to good use here back home? Well, I uh, am flattered uh, that it, it, I'm in the mix, but I've been so focused on, on uh, federal policies, uh, ending the war in Yemen, uh, ending our uh, interventions abroad, and then uh, tech policy on uh, how do we expand access to the digital revolution. Uh, and so both of my passion areas are really on federal policy, and it, it wouldn't be a fit with the attorney general role, though I uh, think it's a, it's a great job and, and hope we have someone uh, progressive, particularly who is passionate and experienced on uh, criminal justice reform uh, to, to uh, assume that office. Do you have any favorites? Uh, anyone that you have called uh, your old friend Gavin Newsom and said, hey, this person would be good? No, I certainly would. I, I wouldn't do that. I'm sure that, I don't know if that would help or hurt in terms of how many people Gavin hears from. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I have heard, I've talked to Ash Kalra, who was a public defender in San Jose, and uh, he certainly would be terrific. I'm sure there are other candidates and we'll find out the, the, the full list. But uh, my view is uh, it's someone who really is going to prioritize uh, criminal justice reform. California has already led in passing a bill to make force a last resort. And what more can we do from that office uh, to set an example for the country? Okay, and let's let's talk about U.S. Senate. Another uh, job that your name has been attached to, Newsom. Let's let's back in the day, he was one of few people who endorsed you when your first run for uh, first you know, big name people who endorsed you. And when you ran for against Mike, Con Mike Honda, uh, the rest of the Democratic establishment was, uh, a, you know, backed Honda, Nancy Pelosi. And uh, have you spoken to him about the Senate opening? Would you be interested in that? Yes, he backed me twice, uh, to, twice. to, to uh, his uh, credit. I mean, backed me and I lost and he backed me again. And, and he hasn't forgotten and neither have I. Uh, so I, I obviously would be honored to, uh, as probably would any sitting member of Congress, to be uh, to have the opportunity to represent California and to, to have it be 
uh, innovative. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I, the governor knows that. I haven't spoken to him uh, at length uh, other than uh, a text here or there. But uh, uh, there are also a number of other great candidates. And uh, obviously, the front runner seems to be uh, Padilla. So we'll see how it uh, shakes out. But uh, yes, it would be an honor. Now, in the interim, since you've been in Congress, you've become one of the leading progressive voices in the country. As our listeners know, uh, you're the first vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And I want to get your take on some of Biden's picks for his cabinet so far. You're also a member of the House Armed Services Committee. What do you think of uh, Biden picking retired Army General Lloyd Austin to be Secretary of Defense? Uh, uh, he would be the first black Secretary of Defense, but he also serves on the board of Raytheon, a defense contractor that is a key supplier of bombs to the Saudi war in Yemen that you referred to earlier, that you've been a, a leading opponent of. Um, uh, you, you've urged the U.S. to pull out its support uh, for the Saudi-led war there. Should Austin lead the Department of Defense, given his work with Raytheon? Uh, no candidate is perfect. That said, uh, I'm encouraged on a number of factors. Uh, I actually just tweeted out before this podcast, this first media interview, I'm discussing it on that he uh, resisted uh, Senator McCain's calls to escalate in Syria. He was uh, overseeing our drawdown in Iraq. Uh, on Yemen, uh, my understanding is that he has uh, been for uh, bringing that conflict to an end. Uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing from him on the Armed Services Committee. Now, people say, what about a waiver? Because in candor, uh, I voted against uh, uh, Mattis's waiver. I didn't think it was appropriate for uh, setting a precedent of a military official soon after uh, assuming the leadership of, of the Department of Defense. Uh, but two, two distinctions. Uh, first, if we did it for Mattis, it seems a few years later now to say we're not going to do it for the first African-American to head up the department uh, seems hypocritical. So uh, at the very least, we should do it uh, as a matter of uh, uh, equity. And the second thing is Mattis had a very independent mind to policy, uh, whereas uh, General Austin seems to uh, be one who has deferred to civilian leadership and shown restraint, and I think he would defer to uh, President uh, Biden. Uh, but you know, we want—I want to hear from him on Hess. And, and as we record this, uh, Biden's leading towards picking uh, Doug Jones. He's a white former senator from Alabama, longtime civil rights advocate, to be his attorney general. Uh, do, you have any, do you have any take on that? There's been there's a lot of other progressive voices in in the mix for that. Um, what, what do you think of Doug Jones as, uh, as AG? I need to look at his full record. I will say this. I had the great honor of going down with uh, John Lewis, the late John Lewis, uh, to Selma. And one of the things that uh, I found out at, during that uh, Selma trip is that uh, Doug Jones had prosecuted uh, the people responsible for the church bombing that uh, uh, killed those young uh, black girls during the civil rights movement. And he really built his entire reputation on uh, that prosecution and bringing those people to justice. So uh, that is certainly something that uh, recommends him for a, a role on, on civil rights. But I, you know, I obviously have to look at his his broader record. Uh, I would just say that that part of his life story is very impressive. What are, are you happy that uh, about the Biden's picks thus far from a progressive 
standpoint. Where are the progressive voices in his cabinet now? Well, Javier Becerra is a uh, pretty strong uh, progressive voice in terms of having supported Medicare for all, having taken on pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and I, I have worked well with, with Javier. It's obviously, I'm a little biased given that he's a Californian, but yes. uh, he has also uh, supported uh, Medicare for all. But look, you know, Joe, the, the reality is, as you know, I was a co-chair for Bernie Sanders' campaign. And if he were president, the cabinet would look very different. Uh, but Joe Biden won. And uh, he's a president of my party. And my inclination is uh, to support his picks and then work with them, knowing that uh, they're not the picks uh, that Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren would have made. But he he won the election. And so now the question is, how do we uh, give him the appropriate deference if there's something that is very wrong, I'll speak out, and then work with these picks to, to make progress on our goals. But you haven't seen anybody who's very wrong right now so far, correct? No, I had spoken out on uh, you know Michelle Flournoy saying that uh, you know sh she had actually called for an escalation in Afghanistan and a few other policies. Uh, in response, she actually had a very productive call with me and with progressive groups that uh, uh, I appreciate it, but then it looks like uh, President Biden went in a different direction with General Austin, who I think is, is uh, for the reasons I mentioned, pretty good on restraint in foreign policy. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Ro Khanna after this short break. And now, here's more of my conversation with Ro Khanna. Where should Bernie be now? Where's the best use of Bernie Sanders right now, given his power and influence? Is it in the cabinet or is he more valuable in the Senate to both progressives and to uh, the, the Democratic Party and to, to the rest of the country? I know Bernie Sanders believes he would do a terrific job at the Department of Labor. And I guess my view is that Bernie Sanders uh, has built a movement and has earned the right to have an impact on policy in the way he sees uh, most fit. Now, you know, it's what you make of the position. If he ends up being someone like a Robert Reich, who I thought was a brilliant labor secretary, probably the best labor secretary we've had in modern times, uh, he could have a real impact. And that's actually an area on labor where uh, Biden is very good. He uh, comes from a working class background. His platform on labor, on $15 minimum wage, on proper classification, was on union rights, was always strong. So that would be my uh, preference. If not, he's going to chair the budget committee in the Senate and uh, can advocate very strongly for progressive values from that uh, that role. And whenever I write about the lack of diversity uh, in government, I hear from readers who say, "Why, why are you, why are you talking about this? Should government be hiring the best and the brightest, no matter who you know what their race or gender or ethnicity is?" What, what do you say to folks like that who who have problems with the you know? Scoreboard keeping, as one reader put it, you know, why, you know, oh, we have uh, uh, two blacks here and three Latinos here and, and four Indian Americans here, et cetera, et cetera. What, what do you say to, to folks about the, who may question the value of us talking about this all the time? Well, when I say we don't have the best and the brightest if so many communities are being excluded, uh, I mean, you were kind to mention my name uh, for the, the Senate, but the fact that we have no Black women, the fact that we have no Indian Americans in the Senate, I, I can't imagine that they're not black, brilliant black women who are uh, thoughtful and qualified people like Barbara Lee and Karen Bass and others. And uh, certainly they're Indian Americans who are uh, qualified. So when you say let's have the best and brightest, uh, the, the assumption should be that we want to look at 
all of the talent in all of the communities. And they're barriers to uh, ascending uh, as a minority still in this country. And uh, if, if you don't think that, then why aren't there more black women in the Senate? Why aren't there more Latinos in the Senate? Why aren't they more uh, Asians in the Senate? Why aren't they more people in these picks? So if we were in a place where I thought that uh, race no longer mattered in American society, uh, then we could talk about not having uh, race as a consideration. But we're, we're still far away from that, that place. Look, looking ahead, uh, from your perspective, what should the priorities of the Biden administration be next year? Well, the first thing we have to do is deal with the uh, pandemic and deal with the economic crisis. Uh, the uh, president is going to have a big challenge to make sure this vaccine is distributed, distributed uh, broadly. I was just talking to Barbara Lee uh, this morning and uh, her, or last night, and her concern uh, is that uh, a lot of the minority communities don't uh, yet have confidence in taking the vaccine. And you know, there's a huge history of vaccinization and yes. a government uh, uh, forcing uh, things on minority populations that uh, have, a, have an awful history. So what are we going to do to, to have majority or vast majority acceptance of this and distribution, uh, this is going to be a major challenge. And I think one of the reasons they picked General Austin is that they need someone at the Department of Defense who's actually logistically capable and uh, of, of uh, overseeing this because defense will be uh, involved. The second thing is we have to deal with the economic crisis. I, the uh, reality is we may dip into another recession. Uh, there are people who can't afford rent. They can't afford food. They uh, they are not able to keep their small businesses alive. Uh, we need a massive injection of uh, economic support. So those would be the top two priorities. Does this all go, uh, for lack of a better term, in the toilet if there's a gridlock? If the Republicans uh, hold on to the, to the uh, Senate, are we looking at four more years and nothing? Well, we, we, we will have a difficult time solving the structural issues. Uh, that doesn't mean, though, uh, it'll be nothing. I mean, remember, this Congress did the CARES Act of $2 trillion, which is one of the most successful pieces of legislation. It had its problems, but uh, overall, I would argue that it was a success. So the question is, why can't we do something similar in terms of the economic relief uh, right now? Uh, the second point uh, is that the president has a lot of executive authority. He could forgive student loans. Uh, he could take actions to uh, have cl bold climate change uh, goals and standards. Uh, he could give every federal employee a $15 minimum wage. So there's a lot that uh, President Biden will be able to do through executive uh, action. And I recently sat down for a, with a long interview with uh, former Governor Jerry Brown. And as you know, he was famous for his canoe theory of politics. You paddle a little bit left, you paddle a little bit right, and you basically keep a centrist course, his case, but a little left of center. But I told him, I said, hey, as soon as Joe Biden lifts his hands off the Bible in January, progressives have told me that they're going to demand that Biden uh, bring, uh, bring a Medicare for all program, a more liberal climate policy. Uh, and now I'm going to play a little bit where, what Brown said in response to that. Maybe they should now in the states where it's now legal, get a good joint and just chill, just chill. I'm not recommending that, but because I'm, you know, if I were a progressive, I might say that. I'm just yes. an independent kind yes. of political uh, veteran. <laughs> How should progressives, provided they, they're not, you know, baked all the time, 
Uh, which of the priorities of progressives be for the new administration? How should they negotiate this? And 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 uh, and how should, how how do you handle that? Well, I love Jerry Brown. We did an op-ed together about a month ago about the risk of accidental nuclear war, where we shouldn't be having the modernization of ICBMs. And let me tell you, Jerry Brown does not think progressives should be chilling about that. No, no, uh, we talked extensively me, about that. It was yeah, he's, he's, he's you know, so he calls me. Uh, to his credit, he calls me once every few weeks saying, well, what progress are you making on the Armed Services <laughs> Committee? So, uh, you know, I, the, the, the point is that, Jerry, there's some people who think that uh, climate change is as big a risk as uh, uh, accidental nuclear war. Obviously, accidental nuclear war uh, would have more devastating consequences immediately. Uh, but when you look at the probabilistic calculations of that versus the probabilistic calculations of climate change, you can understand why there are people who are as passionate as he is about uh, ICUBMs, about climate change. So I guess my view of this is that we have an economic system that has really failed a lot of Americans, failed them in rural communities and minority communities. We have a governance system that has failed a generation in terms of tackling climate change, in terms of tackling uh, the accessibility of the American dream. And we need bold reform. Now, how do you get there uh, if it's just going to be beating up on the Biden administration, that's not productive. But if it's going to be uh, pushing the administration to say, let's build public support, let's keep pushing the envelope, let's be bold, uh, I think that's a very productive use of energy. Uh, I wanted to get your take on something else. President Trump right now is, is threatening to veto the Department of Defense reauthorization bill unless Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is is removed. For those not up on uh, on Section 230, that's the section that prevents uh, protects internet sites from liability for their content and their users' posts. In other words, say someone posts a lot of crazy, unsubstantiated things on Twitter, you can't sue Twitter over that. Now, you in your previous life were an intellectual property attorney, uh, and you oppose uh, doing this. Uh, and I want to hear, I want you to explain to people why you oppose that. But also, why shouldn't Twitter and Facebook be regulated like media companies like CBS or NBC or the San Francisco Chronicle or the New York Times? I think that they should be regulated more than they are regulated now, but it's not analogous to the San Francisco Chronicle. I mean, the San Francisco Chronicle, when they publish a letter to the editor or an op-ed, you know, they may get a 500, 1,000 submissions from people like me and they have to make a determination, uh, but they don't have a billion posts or uh, 500 million posts that they have to go through. So you can't uh, have the same standard of uh, uh, for social media companies. That said, I do think there should be some standards. I think if there is a post uh, legally that is inciting violence under the Brandenburg standard, uh, that post should be removed. And uh, we should have a reform of, uh, or at least discuss sensible reforms to Section 230 that call for removing content that uh, is inciting violence. The other thing I will say is absent the regulations, certainly Facebook and Twitter and social media need to have more accountability for their content. I mean, if the San Francisco Chronicle tomorrow published an op-ed by, by someone in the Ku Klux Klan, you, you could argue that the San Francisco Chronicle would have a First Amendment right to do that. You could argue that it may not violate any law, but probably there would be outrage at the San Francisco Chronicle if they did that. When Facebook does it, you can't just say, well, it's the First Amendment. Well, fine, maybe you legally have the right to do that, but what message are you sending about your company and your company's values to the world? So I think they, there are needs for regulatory reform, but there's also a need for them to have some sense of 
ethical standards like there is in the media. What the president's talking about, though, has no nuance. I mean, if you get rid of Section 230 and you hold them liable for everything, then basically what will happen on these social media platforms is we'll be talking about our kids and our dogs. Uh, fine, maybe that's what people want. I, I think that's way too much of a restriction on speech. Okay, and oh, uh, real quick on uh, the COVID relief bills before Congress, it's, it's a very much a moving target, but you're very much adamant that Americans should get direct payments out of this. Explain a little bit more about how that would work and, when, and what are the possibilities of that happening? Well, first let's look at some of the data. I mean, on PPP, the PPP program, the top 1% of loan uh, recipients got 25% of that funding. There were 600 companies that got $10 million in loans or more. And the average job that it cost taxpayers to save under PPP was about $250,000. It only ended up having an impact of about 2% in companies that got those loans in terms of saving those jobs. So it was just highly inefficient. I think, yes, let's have PPP for restaurants and real mom and pop shops, but the bulk of the money should either be in direct checks to Americans or in massive expansion of unemployment insurance. We know that 73% of the money that went in unemployment insurance was actually directly spent. And actually the economic studies show that's what really helped small business when you have people with these checks spending that che those checks. So uh, yes, it's a matter of fairness, but it's also a matter of economic efficiency uh, that the best way to help create jobs and help people is to give them money. And one last one before I let you go. Uh, speaker Pelosi has been coy about whether this will be her last term as speaker. You, you, you know her a bit. Do you think that she will run for speaker again, provide Democrats win the House? I would be surprised. I mean, she has said that it was a two-term commitment I think she made when uh, last term when she, she did it. I, I mean, I, anything is possible, but I, I think it would be surprising if she goes beyond two terms as speaker. Now she may stay in Congress and be a great advocate for San Francisco. Do you think she would stay in Congress or do you think she would you know, call it quits after that? I don't know, you know, she, she loves being in Congress. She loves San Francisco. She loves repre representing the area uh, and uh, she's in it for public service. So I, I do believe her when she says it's a calling and I don't think she cares about the title or the uh, accoutrements of power. She's had all of that. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think it depends on how much uh, of she thinks she can still be effective. All right. Congressman Rokana, thanks for being back on It's All Political. Uh, hopefully we will see you in, in real life uh, and not just on Zoom uh, in, in the near future. And uh, good luck. And that would safe. be great. Okay. Thank you. Thanks Take for it having me. Okay. Take thanks. care. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank you all for listening today and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Congressman Kana for being on today's podcast. I'd like to thank Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode. And a shout out for our fabulous theme music. That's Cattle Call, and it's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter if you're going to rage against the machine, eh, just smoke a joint and chill. It's all political. <laughs>